0: Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. Hi. Today, you'll hear my conversation with activist, author, and 2020 presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson. Now, I've said it before, and I will say it again. I will not be endorsing anyone at this time. However, I think political outsiders bring an interesting perspective to the conversation. And even if you're not planning to vote for Williamson, she says things that others may not. And now I know what you're saying. You're saying right now in your head, is that the anti-vaxxer? But here's what she said recently on the subject.
1: First of all, I'm pro-vaccine, I'm pro-medicine, I'm pro-science, and I'm pro-responsibility. I'm Mary Ann Williamson, and that about which I am unapologetic is the fact that I'm running for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. Sorry, not sorry. Sorry we haven't talked more tonight about how we're going to beat Donald Trump. I have an idea about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not going to be beaten just by insider politics talk. He's not going to be beaten just by somebody who has plans. He's going to be beaten by somebody who has an idea what this man has done. This man has reached into the psyche of the American people, and he has harnessed fear for political purposes. So, Mr. President, if you're listening, I want you to hear me, please. You have harnessed fear for political purposes, and only love can cast that out. So I, sir, I have a feeling you know what you're doing. I'm going to harness love for political purposes. I will meet you on that field, and, sir, love will win.
0: So there are a lot of politicians and and armchair politicians obviously discussing how this administration is impacting the country and our democracy, but I really think that you are the only person discussing the true soulful and spiritual impact of this administration. And it's one of the, the many reasons why I'm so pleased to be sitting down with you. Thank you. It is so necessary right now, especially as we as a nation have a collective ache, because that's what I feel like is going on. And it's not just... Our circles, but it's I feel like those circles overlap, and we're in a place right now that that I'm fearful or I'm not completely aware of how we get out of it, but before we get into your campaign for president i w- I want to go I want to go back to the beginning you you're obviously incredibly successful for New York Times bestseller books. You've started and worked for nonprofits. You ran for Congress. How did you get here right now?
1: Like, what was your, what was your upbringing like? I grew up in Houston, Texas, upper-middle-class home. My father was, at the time when a term like that even had any meaning, my father was a particularly magical character. He was like a cross between William Kunstler and Zorba the Greek. Mm. I don't know if you know yeah. um My father been been uh, born and brought up in deep poverty, had great passion for social justice issues. He was an immigration lawyer, and he was a world traveler. Wow. I've written about how he took us to uh, Saigon in 1965 to show us what war was mm. because I had come back in the seventh grade— uh, One day at dinner, I was explaining to my parents that my social studies teacher had said that if we didn't fight in in Vietnam, that we would be one day fighting on the shores of Hawaii. Now, that was in those days called the domino theory, and it was how we had to fight the communists and beat them in Southeast Asia, or every country would drop, and then that would be the end of Mm -hmm. our freedoms. So my father rose up, jumped up, said that the military-industrial complex would not eat his children's brains. And he said to my mother, sweetheart, get the visas, we're going to Saigon. Now that's not only... So on one hand, you'd say that my father was an armchair revolutionary. On the other hand, he certainly, you know... Look what he did. He took yeah. his kids to Vietnam yeah. to actually show us what war was, so that as he said, certain propaganda would never be able to reach his children because we would be invulnerable to it. And he was right. People used to say to my father and mother, also, I'm acting like she wasn't even part of this. <clears throat> um, they used to say, "How can you take your kids around, you know, so many places in the world at such a young age? They won't even remember it." And my father's answer was always, "It will get under their skin," and it did. I had a very visceral experience as a very young child that this is one world, and people are the same everywhere. Mm. You know, at that time, uh, the Iron Curtain existed, but we traveled behind the Iron Curtain. So, you know, in Russians particularly, I don't know if this is as true now, it probably is, but they particularly love little children. So it, when I was a child traveling I- in Russia... Even though, yes, it was behind the Iron Curtain, my experience as a little child was just how everybody who, who met me was so excited, ah, you know, making such mm-hmm. a deal over me. So my my cellular understanding, as it were, um, was was international.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm an ambassador for UNICEF. And mm-hmm. first of all, the resilience of children and the celebration of children, I think, is global. But also, I think that there is an innate thing that binds us all together, and that's our ability to dream and hope. No matter where you come from, I think that people always have the capacity to hope for a brighter. It's not
1: only a capacity, I think it's an inborn Resilience, right, tactic, and yearning, and, right? and I think the issue whether we're talking. You, you said that we are bound together by our, our 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 hope, and we're also bound together by our love for children. Mm-hmm. That's something that also is is part of the human experience, part of any species that survives and thrives, cares about its its young, and I think that in, in political terms, the point is that. Our, our governmental policy should align with those natural yearnings. Our governmental policy should align with people's desires and people's hopes and people's love with our children, for our children. And I think that the way this country was founded, the very idea of our Declaration of Independence, the very idea of our, of, of our American freedoms is that public policy should align with people's yearnings to be more, to do more, to, to expand, um, And the fact that there is such divergence today between these natural yearnings of the heart and our political system is what's so exceedingly dangerous.
0: There is a disconnect. So at at what point in your life did did you start searching for a different understanding, a spiritual understanding?
1: Well, my generation... You know, when I was fourteen, I took my first philosophy class, Mm -hmm. and my my generation. I remember in college. You know, this was everybody was reading Alan Watts. Everybody was um, uh, reading Ram Dass. Uh, I was taking comparative religion classes, but also uh, reading other, you know, more esoteric. So, the issues of the higher mind has always been fascinating to me. Whether it was. Uh, more exoteric Western philosophical, St. Augustine or Hegel, or whether that was more esoteric or Eastern. And just anything that has to do with the search for what's going on on some higher level has always appealed to me. It's always been my, um, um, it it's just been where my heart has gone. It's where my mind has gone. It was not that I ever saw politics as unimportant, because in that generation, when I was growing up, we read Alan Watts and Ram Dass in the morning and went to Vietnam anti-war protests in the afternoon.
0: The president of the United States, as you know, who said he was getting elected to end the war, turned out to be very far from the truth.
1: For that generation, it was not either or. It was both and. So that has always been my sweet spot. So on one hand, I was reading all these things, but my father was all about, you know, waging the revolution, you know, from his armchair, definitely. But, you know, when my career began, my father said, you know, what happened to you? I, you know, I brought you up to wage the revolution. I remember saying, but daddy, love is the revolution. That's the greatest revolution. We have to change on the level of the heart. And my father certainly agreed with that. How do we correct all of this with love? Love is an amazing idea, an incredible sentiment. But if you said that to people who are suffering in this country, do they believe love is the answer? <laughs> yeah, and I have a 35-year career helping people transform from trauma to transformation. First of all, on a political field, are we going to say that hatred has not been operationalized? What do you call ISIS if not hatred turned into a, a, a political force? What do you call uh, racism? What do you call Nazis? What do you call these people marching through the streets of Charlottesville saying, Jews shall not replace us? This is bigotry, racism, anti-Semitism turned into a political force. Love has an operationalized, strategic policy component every much, every bit as much as fear does and greed does and amoral economic and political behavior does. Now, I, my political activism never waned. It was just that where I saw my own skill set, my own ability to contribute, the path ahead of me, in front of me, always had to do with the the issue of personal transformation. But that is why, now that Trump is president, that's why I feel we, we can't be silent about this. Because as you said earlier, the dominant political conversation is on the surface. It's about symptoms. It's not about cause. Donald Trump is not just a politician. Donald Trump is a phenomenon. And I don't think you can understand what he has done to this country, what he is doing to this country, or what he will do if, God forbid, he gets a second term, unless you have a much more holistic understanding of the psychological and emotional factors that are at play within that phenomenon. So people who are having a wonky conversation don't have a freaking clue how to defeat this man. They're bringing a knife to a gunfight. And so I think now, in order to navigate the times in which we live, it's an imperative. When you say I'm the only candidate having a more holistic conversation, nothing short of that will navigate these times. Nothing short of that will defeat him. So when someone, uh, I read some article the other day that said, I'm an amateur. No, they're amateurs at the conversation that needs to happen.
0: It does not seem like his authenticity can be beat by
1: trite... Sound bites. And not only that, his, even more importantly than that, because I think that, you know, I, and let, let me say this. I, all of the people who are running in this race are really lovely people. Yeah. And I, I don't think of myself as running against anyone. I'm running with a lot of really good people. None of this is personal. This is about the conversation that is proffered to us by the, demo, by, the by the political establishment, not, not the Democratic yeah. specifically. It's not just the... the the authenticity, authenticity, it's not about trite, because I think I think a lot of people, you know, I hear a lot of candidates saying really good things, but I'm reminded of the fact that when you go into a court of law and you raise your hand, your oath, very interesting, is to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Mm-hmm. The way I look at other candidates, they told the truth, but they didn't tell the whole truth, and they didn't tell nothing but the truth. Interesting. And that's where the conversation doesn't go, because so much of the traditional establishment is itself in bed with some of the more corrupting forces and doesn't know how to disconnect itself. Um, doesn't think it could, could succeed if it disconnected itself fully. I'm not connected, never was. And I don't believe you can, um, at some point you have to, you have to, you know, if, if you're an addict, you just have to stop. It's so I, I, I believe it, it, that it's not just that he won't be beaten by trite sound bites. He won't be beaten by an insider political conversation. The only way, we can defeat that phenomenon is by creating another phenomenon. And the traditional political conversation, even within the Democratic Party, does not allow for the phenomenal. It doesn't allow for the kind of shakti, ecstasy, power, soulfulness, that, without which we won't override what he's about. And And I have had a career not making the political plans, but I have had a career harnessing the inspiration and the motivation and the excitement of people, masses of people, when we know that when we say we are going to turn from a dirty economy to a clean economy, we're going to have a Green New Deal, we're going to create millions of jobs, we're going to do this within the next 12 years, because I'm not interested in just winning the next election. We are interested in our grandchildren.
0: What do you think his supporters have? What is it about human nature that won't let them see what's happening?
1: We don't have time to even indulge that question. It's a free country. People can vote for who they want to vote for. It's... um, it's a misuse of our time and energy to talk about anything other how we can other than how we can work together to be a force that overrides it.
0: Do you think people are talking enough about what happens after the election and how we're going to heal as a nation?
1: Well, I am. Because we need to do more than not go over the cliff. We have to get out of the vicinity of the cliff. I gave a lecture last night here in Los Angeles and I and I opened up by saying, "I'm not here to prosecute a case against Donald Trump. I'm here to prosecute a case against the Uh, the system that created him. Mm. And if all we do is offer up a better version of the same old, same old, first of all, I don't think it will beat him. But second of all, it would just produce him again. Because if that's all we do, we sort of white knuckle it to the White House in, in 2020, they will be back in full force in 22. They will be back in full force in 24. We will never get off this wheel of suffering. We need to do more them win this, you know, we need to win the deeper contest that's going on. And and we can only do that if we speak to the deeper contest that's going on. And that's what I feel that I'm doing. Do you feel that the Democratic
0: Party in general speaks to the average American person?
1: Well, I want to go back to when I was growing up and to point out that it used to. Mm. Um, When I was growing up, you know, I was uh, 17 years old or 16 years old, I think, when Bobby Kennedy died. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you're 16, you kind of know what's going on. I remember being at a at a rally sitting there uh, listening to Eugene McCarthy. Uh, I remember the day Martin Luther King died. So that was the Democratic Party I grew up with. Starting in basically the 90s, it became a very over-secularized, corporatized conversation because... Bill Clinton, God bless him, thought that the way forward was to prove that we too could play with the corporate big guys, and that's when the money exploded onto the political scene. I think the Democratic Party is always the party, almost always, certainly, standing up for the things which will ameliorate people's pain. But that's not enough. We have to be willing to challenge all the underlying forces that make that pain inevitable.
0: I wonder sometimes if we're out of touch, though, because— and, and a lot of this has to do with the 24-hour news cycle, granted. But we know Trump's a racist. That's what he ran on.
1: President Trump is not backing down from critics who say his Twitter attacks on a group of progressive Democratic lawmakers are racist. The president of the United States told progressive Democratic women of color in Congress to go back to the crime-infested places from which they
0: came. If you hate our country... If you're not happy here, you can leave. And that's what I say all the time. That's what I said in a tweet, which I guess some people think is controversial. A lot of people love it, by the way. A lot of people love it. Trump writing this. So interesting to see progressive Democrat congresswoman
1: who originally came from countries whose governments are a complete and total catastrophe, the worst, most corrupt and inept anywhere in the world, if they even have a functioning government at all, now loudly and viciously telling the people of the United States, the greatest and most powerful nation on earth, how our government is to be run. Why don't they go back and help fix the totally broken and crime infested places from which they came. Umar has a history of
0: launching vicious anti-Semitic screeds. To spend the last 48 hours talking about these tweets, when we all know that this is his truth and he's reaching out to his base, instead of talking about the needs of the, the, you know, someone said something so interesting to me, and I felt like literally slapping my forehead and being like, well, of course, I'm such an idiot, which was, you know, we hear about impeachment and Russia and this and that. It is such a great luxury to worry about this stuff because most Americans do not care because they're trying to get food on the table. They're trying to to make rent. They're trying to get prescription medication that they can't afford. They're trying to figure out how they're going to go see the doctor or the dentist. So to think that everyone should be obsessed, as obsessed with impeachment as as we are, is is actually such a luxury.
1: I don't see it uh so much as a luxury as a distraction and a displacement mm, mm. because and and first of all, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. These tweets are important in the sense that this is what Hitler did demonizing groups of people you just keep saying this this is how those atrocities come to be you just keep saying they're bad you just keep saying they're bad i mean that's even and i'm not comparing this mm-hmm. but look at rwanda how did rwanda happen right. well they got hold of the uh, r- uh, radio stations and tv stations and had 24-hour programming saying they are cockroaches they are cockroaches they are cockroaches they are cockroaches when you go to yad vashem the holocaust museum in um in uh, jerusalem they have all of these tapes and speeches that Hitler was saying for years what he was going to do. He kept saying this was nothing, but people thought he couldn't even mean it or it's just talk. Or they, 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 they failed to take seriously what he was saying. So on one hand, we need very much to be listening to what he's saying. However, we need to take it to the next step. Like you said, of course they're racist. The point is more than that they're racist. It's that that kind of racism is a technique of fascism. That's where the Democratic Party needs to go. It's even beyond impeachment. It's a deeper conversation about what this really means and what it has always meant throughout history. Now, in terms of people, and and I do believe that the average American, the average American is smart. The fact that somebody is struggling to take food, put food on the table doesn't mean that they're not having a deeper, uh, pain in their heart ache, as you were saying, about what all this means. So I think in a way it's kind of condescending to think that people who are struggling to get food on their table aren't always also worried about this. Mm -hmm. I think we need to do both. What I and I did an interview yesterday on CBS News, and I was saying my concern about this tweet conversation and the four congresswomen, et cetera, is that something that Democrats do, we Democrats, and I don't want to act like... I'm not one. But too often that I see happening is fighting the fight on the level of symbol. And so on one hand, okay, these four women, and it is important, and I think I've made clear it's important, and these are grown-up women with great power who can also take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. That, the, that that And I'm sure that they would agree with what I'm about to say. If you want to defend someone, Democratic Party, you need to do more than defend them. If you want to talk about defending against racism, defend those millions and millions of American children who are going to school every day in classrooms that don't even have school supplies with which to teach a child to read. And if they do that child does not learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation is drastically decreased and the chances of incarceration drastically increased. That's why I want to see the Democratic Party addressing the deeper sinews of racism in America. So why did you decide to run? For this very reason. You and I could be having this conversation, and I wasn't a candidate. But look at the difference when somebody is a candidate. There is nothing like a political campaign for harnessing a conversation. And I see it already with my campaign. I was talking to Kitty the other day. I've been going on and on about the chronic trauma of children. Four months ever since the beginning of this campaign, and I heard yesterday, I heard, uh uh, Congresswoman Presley talking about, oh, we're going to have congressional hearings on chronic trauma in children. Mm. Uh, I, I've been talking about a Department of Peace, and I hear Elizabeth Warren talking about, oh, I want to re- uh, revamp the State Department. I've been talking about how this is state-sponsored crime, uh, what's happening at the border, as have you, and um, uh, talking about how I will hold, as president, uh, those responsible uh, accountable to the full extent of the law, and now I hear Elizabeth Warren saying something like that. So on one hand... When you have a conversation, first of all, the platform, uh, the ability to reach people, there's nothing like it. There's a vortex within a political campaign that does not exist anywhere else. The other aspects of our culture, the different estates, are extremely important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're more important. But at this point, it, you, you can't avoid actual electoral politics because that's where the levers are being pulled. At the same time, I don't want to just quote unquote influence the conversation. Okay. Because the way things work is if you only influence the conversation, which, I, listen, I've seen my lines for years.
0: Yeah, if you you've only been influencing inf- conversations your entire but career. In, in
1: the culture, influencing the conversation leads to different synapses, leads to different ahas, leads to different insights, leads mm. to different amazing things. And I can look at those things and go, hmm, I think I was in there maybe a little. I think that person might have read my book. But in politics, there's something more... Um insidious going on, which is when I hear politicians do it, I think they focus grouped the language. right? Oh, they learned. So her tweet now has the word love in it because somebody on her staff said, oh, do that love thing. Or we're going to use the word soul because, oh, that seems to really resonate with people. Unless you're talking policy change, it doesn't mean anything. We need to do more than elevate the conversation. We need to elevate the country.
0: And I think I think people understand or can read in when something is organic and authentic to who someone is. I really do. I believe that. I, hope. I believe I know this you is you this but, but this is why I've had a, a long, successful career since I was a little girl, is because people identify authenticity and they trust it. I think you're right. I really believe it. So are you living in Iowa?
1: Well- Understand what that means when you're on a presidential campaign. You don't live, you're in a suitcase. I live in a suitcase. So when my uh, lease was over in my apartment in New York this year, I thought, well, New York, as much as I love it, is kind of off the beaten track for a presidential campaign. So instead I rented an apartment in Des Moines, Iowa, which is where my furniture is. But I haven't been in Des Moines, Iowa. uh, any more than I've been in New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and even here.
0: In your travels around the United States, what have you learned about the American people?
1: How good we are, Mm. how decent, how much people, how smart people are. The political establishment doesn't seem to get how smart people are. And that's part of the message of my campaign. In real life, and I've been for 35 years working with people who are going through traumatic situations, starting with my work Project Angel Food AIDS crisis here in the 80s. The question is what can you do today to create a context of people feeling empowered, people feeling loved, people feeling cared for? I had this dream of renting a house and I thought in terms of non medical support services.
0: Originally, Marianne had started the LA Center for Living.
1: We had so many people who were therapists and healers and masseuses. And I thought, you know, there are so many people here who would be willing to help. It became apparent that some people could not come to the drop-in center anymore because they had lost their mobility. And that's when I started, I think, talking to David Kessler and saying, you know, we need a program to take these meals to people who are homebound now. My experience of people, rich or poor, black or white, care or straight, so irrelevant. Just my experience of people is that if they're in trouble... They just learned their child is addicted to heroin. The results came back, and it's cancer. Their spouse really is leaving. The job really is gone. That the superficial preoccupations that so clutter our lives drop within the first five minutes. Mm -hmm. And people get very smart and very intelligent, and they really want to hear what the doctor had to say, and they really want to hear what the therapist says. You know, they're, they're really kind of looking at me like you are now. People get very serious. But our political conversation talks to people like they're in high school.
0: Yeah, it belittles everyone's intelligence. Here
1: we are living at one of the most critical moments, not only just in the history of our country and our democracy, but of our world. Mm. We will not get through this unless we all become deep thinkers. And yet, we have a political establishment that keeps the conversation so on the level of the symptoms, so superficial, so on the level of watering the leaves rather than watering the roots, so not mm-hmm. soulful, not looking at the deeper forces of corruption, not only in our society, but within ourselves that brought all this forth.
0: So, I mean, you speak a lot about harnessing love for political purposes. How do we actually play that out in a political way?
1: It's not mysterious at all. You see a hungry child, you feed them. You see an an uneducated child, you uh, teach them. You see a a poor person struggling, you help them. You see conflict or the potential for conflict, you wage peace. You help people thrive.
0: Yeah, it's not... (laughs) So simple, and by the way, it goes back to what a child would would do in, absolutely in these, in these situations. We right? must
1: return to the ways of, of of our deepest nature. We are on this earth to love one another. That is the only survivable path for the twenty first century. You know, love one another is not only a statement of the goal. It is the guidance system for achieving the goal. goal, So in 1776, the United States led the way, opened up a space of possibility that had not existed on this planet before, which was the idea that all should be able to thrive. Mm. It was radical in in 1776, and it's radical today. The 21st century, the United States got... We've had a rough start to the 21st century because 9-11 was in 2001. And Donald Trump is president. So take the first the first 19, 20 years of this century. have been very difficult for the United States. We're yeah. like, a, a, like a giant kind of wobbling on our feet. Now we have to claim what we want. This is as true in a collective as it is for an individual. What is it you want? Mm-hmm. Claim the vision of what you want. That's why politics right now, that's why in a president, we need a visionary even more than we need a mechanic. We need someone who harnesses the power of our collective imagination. What do we want? Do you want peace? Because if you want peace, you're not going to get to peace by just endless preparation for war. Mm -hmm. So if you have a $750 billion military budget, but the peace building agencies get less than a billion dollars a year, then you're spending all your money on medicine, but none of your, your resources on cultivating health. So... You have to decide, do you want peace? Because if you want peace, your public policy is going to be really different. So w- w- what's guiding your public policy? A real agenda for peace creation or short-term profit maximization for defense contractors? So right now, like I said, our national security agenda is driven by military preparedness. Now, I don't think any of us would argue, of course, we need a strong military. But the military should be like a surgeon. If you're going to have surgery, we need the best surgeon. But you avoid surgery if possible. Mm -hmm. So our national security agenda is driven by hundreds of billions of dollars over and above what even the military says they need to keep us safe. And more having to do with short-term profit for defense contractors. I'll give you an example. Our Air Force has ordered 100 100 airplanes that are called the B-21 Raiders. The B-21 Raider, each one costs $550 million. But listen to this. Each one is capable of dropping not only conventional weapons, but also nuclear weapons. So, let me ask you, why do we need 100 airplanes that drop nuclear weapons? Mm. Because you drop five of those, it's over for human civilization as we know it, mm. because even the smallest nuke on the planet today makes Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like a pinprick. Right. You drop 10 of those, it's over for humanity on this planet for at least, we're told, two, three 300,000 years. So you think that those planes, $550 million each, while we have 13 million uh, children in America who are hungry, who are food insecure, while, while we have millions of American children who who I don't know if we have millions who ask their teachers, but we certainly have many American children who go to school and ask their elementary school teachers if they have any food they could eat today. When we have at least thousands and hundreds of thousands, I think, of American children who go to schools that don't even have glue sticks and paper. Right. But we're spending $550 million. Not only that, we spend within the State Department, which gets $40, 40 billion a year. That's for diplomacy and, and um, uh, mediation and development within the 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 state department budget 17 billion goes to the USAID which is humanitarian mm-hmm. support mm-hmm. and less than 1 billion goes to the peace building agencies then we have an independent united states institute of peace that gets a whopping 36 million so if you're paying 750 billion a year on military and less than 1 billion on peace on peace building the peace builders, you see, don't really have a place at the table. Right. And that's what a Department of Peace, the, I will have in my cabinet, say, we're, 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 we're talking about how to create a peaceful world here, guys. We're imagining what's it going to take. We should not just have war games. We should have peace games. Mm. What's it going to take to even have the possibility of peace on this planet 50 years from now, 100 years from now? That's not what we're doing. When I was a, a, a younger person, politicians used to use the phrase peace and prosperity. I have therefore chosen this time and place to discuss a topic on which ignorance too often abounds and the truth too rarely perceived. And that is the most important topic on earth, peace.
0: General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. We welcome every honest act of peace. We care nothing for mere rhetoric. We care only for sincerity of peaceful purpose attested by deeds. We are ready, in short, to dedicate our strength to serving the needs rather than the fears of the world.
1: And I asked myself a few years ago, I wonder why they don't use that phrase anymore. My next thought was, oh, I guess it's kind of a cliche, and then I realized that's not why they all it's not the goal anymore. Mm-hmm. so a department because there's of, money in war thank you that all that we're talking about the tyranny yeah. of an unbridled capitalist uh marketing system untethered to moral and ethical consideration by which, which has so corrupted our government which has so hijacked our value system that we place short-term profits for health insurance companies and environmental uh, uh, fossil fuel companies and gun manufacturers and big pharma and defense contractors above the advocacy for the health and well-being of us, the American citizens, the people of the world, and the planet on which we live. The political system has been so corrupted by this, and for us to think they're going to fix it is absurd. The status quo lives only to perpetuate itself, and all that the 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 political status quo, even on our side, offers is a better version of Mm -hmm. it. Is an incremental, the incremental changes that will make the pain less, but doesn't really make the corruption less. And if we don't make the, we don't really address the level of corruption that creates all this and maintains all this, the pain will always be back. The symptom will always be morphing. Um, into another symptom, whether it's among people that you know or not.
0: You have very legitimate ideas on how to not only fix th- issues, but also how to heal from this place that we're in now. I'd love to just go through some of the sure. critical issues that we're facing, and you can you know, say what you will about them.
1: Healthcare. I am going with the idea of a public option that's an addition to the Obamacare exchange. There are people... Uh, and I've had extensive conversations about this. And there are many people saying to me, Marianne, what are you talking about? We need to go to Medicare for all immediately. A kind of more like a Bernie plan. Um, it'll gum up the system. If we don't, you're just making mm-hmm. it easy. I mean, I've heard all those arguments. This is where I sit today. I want to be an agent of change, fundamental change. I think that's obvious. But I don't want to be an agent of chaos. Hmm. I don't want to be an agent of more disruption than is necessary in any given issue. And if you say, I want to completely revamp this one area, my fear is that the brakes are going to lock. And so let's not make enemies where we don't need to. Do you know what I'm saying? That That's why I feel if if people want to have private insurance, let them have it. If people are happy with what they have, if we go ripping out every every t- every, that just ten, creates more chaos. It's going to be and it's going to create a level of resistance. Let's let's be very clear here. Democrat wins in twenty twenty. You think those forces are going to go away? Mm-mm. You think they're not going to be back the day after inauguration? You think the fossil fuel companies are going to be fighting every step? You think the healthcare ins- health insurance companies are going to be fighting every step? You think the uh, big farmers are going to be fighting every step? So. This has to be navigated very, very carefully. And I believe that that the fact that I've had as much experience navigating personal change gives me a leg up. And if you go too far in one direction, people constrict. Also having just an understanding of how people function. All that a nation is is a group of people. Yes, all that a nation is is a group of people. You know, the political establishment has created this myth. It's this real Wizard of Oz type thing. There's something's going on behind the curtain that we don't know about. No, it's not. It's just people sitting. I've been in the White House. I've been at Camp David. It's a room, just like we're sitting in, and people are sitting around talking. And then they're going to make decisions, and the president's going to make a phone call and say, I want it this way. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. It's not this huge, right. oh, you have to be one of them to know. Mm-hmm. That's particularly funny because people who think you have to be one of them apparently don't know what they do all day. Right. Half the time they're hey. having to be on the phone asking for money.
0: Yeah. How about immigration? I mean, you're uh, in a unique my position thought, well, because of your
1: dad. Yes. What this man has done, what the president has done to demonize the immigrants is, well, first of all, it's criminal. It's criminal on an external level because kidnapping a child is, is a crime. And the fact that your, your government did, it doesn't make it less of a crime. Uh, intentionally inflicting a traumatic circumstances onto a child is child abuse. That's a crime, and it doesn't make it less of a crime uh, just because your uh, your government did it. That's called state-sponsored crime. And as president, I will make sure that those who have, have created these policies and perpetrated these policies will be held accountable to the full extent of the law. This was an intentional this was a crisis that is not, you know. People talk about the crisis at the border. First of all, we have to look at the crisis in El Salvador, the crisis in Guatemala, right. the cri- crisis in Honduras. And you might remember that at the first uh, at the first debate, I said I don't remember any of you guys have any co- anything to say about uh, foreign policy in Latin America over the last few decades because what we have done in international policy is exactly what we've done in domestic policy, and that is to put short-term profit maximization for huge multinational corporations, we began to consider them our quote-unquote vital national interests as opposed to real championing of democracy and amelioration Mm -hmm. of human suffering. The president purposely closed many of the ports. We have a humanitarian disaster coming up, people whose lives are so fraught with violence and fear that they are willing to do anything. And I know you've spoken beautifully about this. What would it take for a mother? Can you imagine you or me with our children? We're going to walk across the desert. We're going to walk across the desert. You know what? And- I
0: can imagine it because I would do it to get my child to safety.
1: Exactly. And all that a quote unquote caravan is, is there's safety in numbers. numbers. We'll be safer if we all walk together. Now, humanitarian, you know, this country looks at times like we look at the fact that at the beginning of World War II there were boats of Jews from Germany in New York Harbor we turned them away. We look at that now as having been a horrible moment of shame. We need to realize this is a moment of shame. Seeking asylum in the United States is not a crime. It's a statutory right. All four of my grandparents came through Ellis Island, escaping pogroms in Russia. This is what, this is part of the narrative. It's a golden thread in the tapestry of the American story. That, you know, give me your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. If we're not going to mean it anymore, let's take the plaque down. Because mm. the Statue of Liberty doesn't mean anything mm. anymore. So obviously it's racist. Obviously it has to do with who they are. We wouldn't be doing this to a bunch of Scandinavians because he likes them because they're white people. And, um, this, this has to stop. These detention centers had to stop. I have been to uh, Homestead. I know you have mm-hmm. as well. Although you probably, I would think you agree with me that it was as not only learning about what's happening in P- Homestead was profound, but also seeing all the people there day in, day out in the Miami heat, willing to bear witness to the agony of what goes on inside.
0: Our kids! Our
1: kids! I thought that was very profound. We need a coalition, what Martin Luther King called a coalition of conscience. Just to finish your, in order to make these changes, in order, though, to finish your question, because I don't want to uh, be one of those politicians who just like answers whatever you want. (laughs) What happened to that question? Um, Ronald Reagan gave amnesty to 11, to 8 million people. We just need to create a path of citizenship for all these people. If someone has not committed a crime... Just create a path of citizenship. It's both Democrats and Republicans who have allowed the situation to get as fraught as it has gotten. We need, obviously, more points of entry. Right now, as we speak, the president is seeking to make asylum-seeking from Central America harder. Oh, and he's just making the the, the, the standards for what it takes to con- right. be considered a sta- uh, an asylum-seeker. This is an attack. This is an attack on the—it is an attack on the spiritual basis of our democracy. This is why it is so dangerous and why it absolutely must be challenged and it must be stopped.
0: Women's rights? We need to pass the RA. It's it's unbelievable. We don't even have it. It's crazy, isn't it? It is. It's
1: quite unbelievable. I think we should begin by electing a woman president. How
0: about gun violence?
1: We need universal background checks. We need to close the uh, the, um, loopholes. There is a question though about registering, um, uh, registering bullets. See, like if we make the AR-15, the AR-15 should be outlawed. We should no longer be able to sell it. But even if you uh, no longer make the AR-15 available for sale, there will be millions that are already out there. But what we can start doing is outlawing the ammunition, and that's what needs to happen. Mm. So we need to outlaw the sale of the AR-15 and then outlaw the sale of ammunition so that even if people have them already, they can't use them because those bullets will not be available for sale. And we should also put serial numbers on the bullets because if you put serial numbers on the bullets, then you can trace who killed someone.
0: I mean, would you, as a young person growing up in this country, would you ever think that we would get to this place with gun violence?
1: It's interesting that you say that. I I remember when I was a child and there was a shooting at an elementary school in Houston, and it was the biggest news. No one could even imagine such a thing happening. There has been so much that has happened. I've spoken with my brother and I've said to him, and I think he said to me, too, I'm glad Daddy wasn't alive to see this. Mm. I think even when you look at something like the willingness of the United States for the sake of a $350 billion arms sale to Saudi Arabia to give aerial support to a genocidal war in Yemen, tens of thousands of people have starved, many of them children. Our grandparents would be rolling over in their graves. Now, I don't have a romantic view of the past where I think we ever got it right entirely, obviously, right. but the United States was known for trying, trying. That You know, Mike Pompeo, the State Department, when challenged about the Yemeni um, situation with Saudi Arabia, the State Department put out a statement saying, well— Sometimes you have strategic partnerships with people who do not share your values. No, you can't. That means you have no values. That means you have abdicated. The United States has abdicated all moral responsibility and leadership. This is such a huge and historic tectonic shift. And I think what more Americans need to realize is that democracy does not just give you rights. It gives you responsibilities. And we all need to stand up and show up now, as you, by the way, so beautifully do. That's very kind. Thank you. We are now living in a time where huge corporate conglomerates, whether it's oil companies, fossil fuel companies, chemical companies, agribusiness, big, big pharma, health insurance companies, military industrial complex, our government has become a system of legalized bribery especially since the the, uh, Citizens United case, where the nefarious influence of money is so great that our government now acts mainly as a handmaiden to these corporate forces. Our own government does more to advocate for the short-term profit maximization of the huge huge corporate conglomerates than it does to advocate for the people of the United States to even care about the people of the world or the planet on which we live. This is perilous. This is dangerous. As Louis Brandeis, late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, you can have large amounts of wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, or you can have democracy, you cannot have both. Our country, our country was founded on the idea that all men are created equal. Our country was founded on the idea that God gave inalienable rights to life and to liberty and to the pursuit of happiness to all men. And that governments were instituted among men to secure those rights. And Lincoln came along later and said that this is to be a government of the people, by the people, and for the people.
0: I just want to briefly, because I know you're very busy, you're running for president, but I want to discuss briefly what responsibility the media has in all of this. It was very frustrating for me to watch that first debate, and I'll tell you why. Because in 2016, the outsider was embraced and given a really – No, Donald Trump.
1: Oh, all right. Oh, here, I hear what you're saying, yeah.
0: And giving a really large platform. Mm -hmm. And also, I feel like the media really legitimized his candidacy. Oh, they have blood on
1: their hands. And I think many of them know it.
0: And watching that first debate and seeing how you were dismissed being the outsider. And you
1: didn't even see Chuck Todd's face because you were behind him.
0: No. Unbelievable. I mean, you know. (sighs) What are you
1: doing here? (laughs) Shut
0: up. Did Andrew Yang have the same, did they respond to him the same way?
1: I don't know. Or was it different because he was a man? I haven't spoken to him since.
0: Are they overcompensating with not embracing the outsider voices? Because as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing more democratic than having outsider voices
1: contribute to a vital conversation. Well, first of all, we should challenge the whole idea of outsider. I mean, what is well, this? Who is right. None of us should be considered an outsider. That's that's that, very. It true. really goes all the way back to the beginning. <laughs> that the is very true. The Constitution doesn't even mention political parties, right. and George Washington warned us against them when he left office. So this whole idea that they've created that there's an inside, I challenge the idea that only the people whose careers have been entrenched with the mind into the mindset that brought us into this ditch are the only people qualified to take us out of the ditch. And so they're calling anybody who's not them an outsider is part of the problem. And that's the work of what I call the political media uh, industrial complex. That's all we're talking right. about here. It's um, such a great on point. On the other
0: hand, I think... It's part- such a great point. It's a very important point. Yeah. To make.
1: Now, on the other hand, I've also learned, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, the media is not a monolith uh, in, in everything we're talking about. It's sometimes good people trapped within a rotten system. Mm. So, just like when we talk about corporate greed, I mean, you and I both have some wonderful friends in this town who are very nice billionaires, you know what I mean? Who agree with a lot of what we're saying. It's not like every rich person is greedy. It's not like every poor person is noble and pure. And it's not like every person within the media has that arrogant attitude of what is she doing here? Although I've confronted it plenty. I've always felt People who go to my lectures, let's say, I might not be their cup of tea, but I don't think anybody leaves thinking I'm not a decent person or fairly intelligent. But this projection onto me, almost like anger that I'm in the room. How dare you be here? How dare I be here? That's how far we have strayed from democracy. Right. What I minute, mean, I dare, I'm an American? The just well, Constitution- decency, not even democracy, decency. Yeah, well, the Constitution says 35 or older, born here and lived here for 14 years. If the Constitution had wanted to say that to run for president or to be president, you have to have been a governor, you've had to have been a lawyer, right. you've had to have been a senator, you've had to have been a congressman, they would have and they didn't because they were leaving to every generation to determine for itself the skill set that that generation feels is most necessary to navigate the times in which we live.
0: So let's say that this is the first time anyone has been introduced to you and your policy. What do you want to say to people?
1: Well, it's like you said before. It's not about soundbites, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Is it? The fact that somebody is listening to your podcast says to me already they're in a a more expansive place. And I think particularly for someone like yourself, Alyssa, I would think that it's less about That's specific and more about just the nature of our conversation, the places we're going to, Mm -hmm. the space you open up, and the space that I try to inhabit when you do, I believe that we need a fundamental pattern disruption of the economic, social, political, and moral status quo in the United States. I think we need to remember what it says in the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. God gave inalienable rights of life, liberty, or the pursuit of happiness to all that governments are instituted to secure those rights, and that when the government fails to do that, when the government fails to provide for the safety, security, and happiness of the people, it is the right of the people to alter it or abolish it. Now, I'm not calling for the abolition of our government, but you damn right I'm calling, for the alteration of our government. It turns out that the American Revolution is an ongoing process. You don't take care of your marriage, don't be surprised that you lose your marriage. Mm-hmm. You don't take care of your health, don't be surprised you lose your health. And we abdicated the responsibilities of citizenship in too many cases. And it turns out you can't just set yourself up as a, as a democracy and take it for granted that as my father used to say, the bastards won't always be at the door. <laughs> so I think there's an awakening But we are fooling ourselves if we think that the political establishment is going to interrupt the pattern that it established. We need, you know, you can have the best political mechanic in the world. That political mechanic does not necessarily know the road you should take to San Antonio. Mm -hmm. We should include, particularly not only when we think of political leadership, but I believe particularly in terms of the presidency going forward, we need to think not only in terms of administrative ability, because... Franklin Roosevelt said that the administrative aspect of the presidency is secondary. He said the primary role is moral leadership. Mm-hmm. We need a president who is, who is skilled not just at political mechanics, because as important as that is, we have many political experts in Washington and in this system. We need to include vision, moral, la- lack of moral equivocation, And and an ability to harness the imagination and the excitement and the inspiration and the hope of the American people. Donald Trump won. And if he's elected again, he would only be elected again. Not only because of the people who are so excited about Donald Trump. We lost last time and will lose again if, God forbid, we lose again. Equally as much by all the people who stayed home. Who wouldn't stay home if they were inspired by something. So if all we offer up is same old, same old political conversation, we need to not have amnesia. We had that last time. They beat us last time. And the same forces, whether they're from Russia, whether they're from the United States or anywhere else, that came at us last time will be coming at us this time. But they can only do that in a state where it's close. Mm So we need a massive uprising of consciousness and a massive uprising at the polls that will only come if people are passionate and people are excited and people will not get excited and they will not get passionate unless we get deep, get real, get authentic, have the real conversation. The only way to beat his big lies is if we are stating big truths, big truths, if we get down and we get real. And what I know about the American people is that when we do that, we're as smart as anybody. And we're as capable as anybody. There are a lot more lovers than haters. But the haters today are convicted. And conviction is a force multiplier. Mm. So we need to become as convicted behind our willingness to love each other, love the earth, love not only our children but other people's children as well, and love our unborn great-great-grandchildren. We have to get as serious about that. And we should remember that that being called wacky, Is just a technique to keep it out of the conversation.
0: If the world needs to be changed, and let's face it, it always does, the ideas that change it often come from the outside. There was a time when gravity was considered crazy, when people believed the world was flat and the sun revolved around the earth. We thought that black people could be property and couldn't vote, that women shouldn't vote, that leeches would draw out bad blood to cure disease, and that it's important to say bless you after sneezing to keep demons from getting in. Every single wrong belief we ever collectively held was changed from someone looking at it from the outside. In 1610, Galileo published a book that promoted the radical idea that the Earth and planets revolved around the Sun instead of the other way around. It detailed his observations using a telescope that showed the phases of Venus. He later went on to theorize that the tides were evidence for the motion of the Earth. And in 1632, he was tried and convicted for hearsay, excommunicated, and kept under house arrest until he died but those writings were foundational for what we now understand as the physical sciences. Today we undoubtedly have beliefs that are so wrong that future generations will find them as laughable as we find the idea of a flat earth, Maybe something like the notion that we don't have an equal rights amendment or that our government refuses to allow transgender people to serve in the military or that failed businessmen who have no understanding of government should ever be president. Who knows? What we do know is that it will be someone from beyond the current way of the world who drives those changes. Many of those outsiders will appear a little wacky to us. They will challenge our firmly held beliefs, and more so, they will challenge what we know to be true. The question is this, will we treat them like the Catholic Church treated Galileo, or will we learn from the failures of our past as new evidence reshapes our world? This election has outsiders, and nearly none of those outsiders have a real chance of becoming president. We know that. And so do they. But maybe, just maybe, some of their more radical ideas about how to do things differently will be the catalysts that change the political gravity of two entrenched parties. Parties that fail to inspire more than half of our citizens to vote in any given election. Outside the box is where the world is inside the box gets pretty dark and stuffy. So let's celebrate those on the outside who everyone else is trying to marginalize. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windisch. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.